and welcome to the first episode of the Spitfire podcast in partnership with IWC Schaffhausen. I'm John Hudson, the UK military's chief survival instructor and a former RAF helicopter pilot. And this series is going to be an in-depth look at the iconic Spitfire. This series has come about, in part, as an accompaniment to the longest flight expedition, a record-breaking round-the-world trip and a restored Mark 9 Spitfire. In 2019, a couple of pilots from Boltby Flight Academy, the only recognised Spitfire flying school in the world, which also allows anyone to fly in one of these classic planes, will fly the Silver Spitfire to around 30 countries. Some will not have seen one of these planes since the 40s, and some never at all. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Matt Joe, co-founder of Boltby, and the lead pilot flying the Spitfire during this incredible expedition. We'll be finding out how he came to pilot this dream machine, and what it's like to actually fly one today. Morning, Matt. Thanks for joining us, and uh, it's a pleasure to see you again yeah, you in, too, a, in John. warmer, drier circumstances. <laughs> but more of that later. So I came prepared, actually. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I've got my ration packs and all my uh, all my survival kit just in case. I know what you're like. Last time, I didn't. We didn't know we were going to spend a night on the on the uh, on the moor. Yeah. So, uh, Your yeah, face was priceless. Sl- slightly nervous <laughs> of seeing you today. Don't be. I promise. There'll be no surprises. But for those of you who haven't met before, mate, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, please. Um, well, I guess the, the reason I'm sat here is we're about to go and do this sort of very exciting um, Spitfire around the world trip. Uh, I've been a pilot for 20 years now. I've been flying Spitfires for 10 years. Uh, we set up a business that was all about um, giving people access to this aeroplane, which, right. which means so much to us as a nation mm. and to nations around the world, yeah. where historically they've been owned by military and therefore difficult to get close to yeah. or by sort of very rich people and therefore you know, sort of wrapped up in cotton wool. So, mm. so our aim in, uh, in setting this business up was to give this sort of uh, icon, this, this um, country legend back to the people, give access to Brilliant. it. And, th- and that's kind of... This, the reason this trip has come about is out of that initial wish to do that. Oh, that's fantastic. So I've been flying the Spitfire for, uh, for 10 years. And I, I'm very lucky to be able to display them and uh, mm. met some exceptional people. Sadly, uh, you know, based on the fact we're in 2019 now, many of them not with us mm. anymore, who, uh, who flew these, flew these aeroplanes for real mm. when it really mattered. Um, I do feel like a a little bit of a fraud when I people tell me I'm a Spitfire pilot. I, I do kind of correct them and say I'm a pilot who flies a Spitfire <laughs> rather than a Spitfire pilot. I think, I'm sure. I that think I think the latter are those those young men who um, who gave their who who gave their lives and uh, and were prepared to give yeah. that. So so it's been fantastic having that access to the airplane. The, the absolute dream has been meeting the people who flew it and mm. then. You know what we do day to day is about telling their story mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, and making people don't forget, uh, making sure people don't forget um, about this sort of incredible time in history. Yeah, and it's it's very self-effacing the way you describe yourself, but I'm sure the guys who flew it back in the day wouldn't mind at all you calling yourself a Spitfire pilot because they're all very self-effacing as well, aren't they? They they are. There's something very. I mean, I've never been shot at, so I don't want to put myself in the same place as them. But there is mm. something very humbling about aviation in general. Mm. You know, I was I was in business before. I worked for an investment bank, and there, if you were successful, seventy percent of the time, you were a wealthy man. Mm. If mm. you're successful seventy percent of the time in aviation, you're probably not with us anymore. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and that really concentrates the mind, actually, and really, um, you know, makes you focus on what's important, and and definitely makes you sort of less. Um, 
or gives you less desire to tell people that you're great. <laughs> you, you know, because you, you spend your time thinking, I am only one moment away from ballsing up because there are far better people than me that have done it. And, yeah. I, and it's just a matter of time. So, so as a group of people from just the aviation point of view, we have we very much have that in common. If mm. you, as you know, John, if you meet another pilot for, who speaks a different language somewhere else in the world, you can spend quite happily an evening in the bar with them chatting yeah. and getting on immediately. There is something that uh, really bonds us all. There is, and it's very, like you say, it's very down key, isn't it? There's not any very bragging culture. Absolutely not, yeah. You and just, you can't survive in aviation in with that, with that, in that, with that kind of attitude. No, true. Enough. And uh, so, so I had a, yeah, of all the things we've done with the Spitfire so far, I had you know, great honour of meeting um, Jeffrey Wellham. Oh, sadly passed away this year. Yeah. Tom, uh, late last year, sorry. Tom Neal, the same. I mm -hmm. had Tom Neal in the back of a two-seater with BBMF all oh, around wow. me on the 75th anniversary of the uh, Battle of Britain. And what about yourself? Do you remember when you first became aware of Spitfires? You said you started off in, in banking, but yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did that transition happen well, for you? Well, people often ask me... Uh, uh, why I became a pilot and my honest answer is and, and I think people think I'd say this quite glibly right. um, but but my honest answer is I never grew up you know as a as a four-year-old I pointed into the sky and uh, and I saw an airplane and I saw a cockpit yeah, and yeah. I, I, that's it this is what I want to do so yeah. a story thousands of people have told before but first model Spitfire yeah same you know, actually <laughs> <laughs> you know it's important and and that you know that means that that airplane was important to our parents or our grandparents who bought yeah. us that model and uh, and that and that gives an element of you know how important this aircraft is as it's as if it's been sort of passed down mm. as if it's a um, as if it's a member of the family you know there's a connection at so many levels with it um, I couldn't join the air force my eyesight wasn't good enough oh, really? I'd love to have loved to have joined um, not sure I'd have been very good at it, to be honest. Oh, I think um, you'd have right in, mate. But <laughs> thanks. Uh, but I went off in another path. I studied engineering and mm. then worked for a bank right. uh, for eight years in the city. Spent the first four years thinking, "Wow, is this it?" And the next four, the next year, looking out the window, seeing airplanes flying into Heathrow. Ah, uh, right, okay. And uh, the, the last three years there, um, learning. Yeah, weekends. Yeah. I took a year sabbatical, went over to the states, and uh, so it was a definite choice. You're just kind of building the the ground then to to step away from your your day job almost. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I actually, I was so fed up with the bank at one point about working there that it just wasn't my core. Mm -hmm. That I that I left, that I quit, and I worked out my period, and then um, I had nothing to go to, nothing to go and do, and I uh, I had a girlfriend who lived down in Somerset at the time. And I, um, I drove down, saw her, spent the weekend there, mm. and then she went to work. And I woke up on Monday morning and thought, well, I've, I've got nowhere to go. Oh, wow. I, I was heading towards my parents' house, and uh, I went past uh, Yeovilton. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. The, and the, uh, the museum there. Hmm. So I thought, well, why not? And I was the only person in there at really? 9 o'clock on a Monday morning. Right. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that was great because it, I mean I could get a bit closer to the aeroplanes. Yes, probably I was allowed to, and I, yeah. I leant over into a, uh, a tiger moth and started mm. playing with the controls. And I'd flown chipmunk at school in CCF, oh, and yeah. uh, I thought, what? Well, you know, if I'd really thought about this, I should be going out now rather than driving home. I should be off to learn to fly. Right. I spent a week at home. Mm -hmm. I rang my boss and said, "I've made a mistake. I'd like to come back." Yeah. What did he say? He said, "Yep." Yeah. He took me back on. Okay. 
I spent a year and a half there, then sort of saving for right. for, for training mm-hmm. and doing all that that stuff, and uh, and then left. And this time, sort of had the had the kind of the idea and the and the path and the, and started learning. Went over to the states and flew there. And what made you choose the states? Because a lot of the early RF pilots had to go overseas to to train. Was it the same kind of thing? Less congested airspace or better weather? Uh, to be honest with you, <laughs> in retrospect, absolutely. Right. The, the, the truth is, it was less expensive. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and what it meant was that in a period of a year and a half, I was able to amass fourteen hundred hours. That's it, good was, it was it was yeah, yeah. huge amounts of flying. And I have to say, if I never see a Cessna one fifty two again, <laughs> I, it will never be too soon. <laughs> really? Yeah. And we were doing eight nine hours a day in them, sort of teaching people in them when I when I was instructing over there. Oh wow. Um, but while we were there, it's in Kissimmee in Florida. There was a. Um, there was a, uh, uh, as there still is, Stallion 51 where they fly Mustangs. And oh. I used to watch the Mustangs taxiing past and Brilliant. thought, amazing. No way, but amazing. One day maybe I'll be able to afford to have a flight in one. And then one day a blue Spitfire turned up oh, yeah, next yeah. to the Mustang. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, the Mustang's beautiful, but that. Totally different class. Totally different class. Yeah. And then thought no more about it. You know, it just seems so out of reach. You know, it wasn't something that at the time, there is slightly more so now, but at the time there was no real path. There was no, if you know, if you want to fly a Spitfire, yeah. this is how you do it. Yeah. And I was focused on, you know, getting a job mm-hmm. and... and uh, the, the day-to-day necessities. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly that. And, and making sure that my investment in my flying paid off. Yes, and, yeah. uh, and uh, and then I, I got a job flying a private jet, and then got my command sort of less than two years after that, which okay. was fantastic. It was through that that I met Steve. Oh, uh, right, okay. Didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, it was actually flying his jet. Hmm. And uh, we started talking, and one thing led to another, and before we knew it, we had a two-seat Spitfire and an, and, um, an I- and an idea for a business. Well, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. What are the chances? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, so I have been unbelievably lucky. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But then you make your own luck. Like so much well, in life, you've got to follow that kind of um, decision once you make it, haven't you? I, I, yeah, I think so. I think, I think that, you know, th- there's definitely been luck in there. I like to think I've made the most of that mm. luck uh, mm. or at least seen the opportunities. But, uh, you know, him seeing something in me, I guess, um, played a big part in that. Mm. So, you know, thanks to him forever for that. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, yeah. So... You've been flying these airplanes for quite a while now, mate, but can you cast your mind back and remember what it felt like the very first time you, you took a Spitfire into the air? <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably the last thought I will forget in my life. It was, really? the, it was such a special day, you know. Uh, so can I remember it? Absolutely. And, and how did it feel? Um, Difficult to, to, difficult to put into words. You know, I was, um, I'd done about six hours in the aircraft at the time. Hmm. And I was flying out of Kemble, training out of Kemble. And I, my instructor had taken me to Oxford for the day to do some flying there. Right. And we were transiting back. And my last landing at Oxford was horrific. Horrific's probably a bit strong, but it wasn't, it was by far the worst one I'd done in the sort of last three, four days. Right, okay. And uh, anyway, I went around, and rather than doing another one, he then said to me, okay, we better go back to Kemble. I was sitting there going, oh, no. I've, uh, you think that's it? I've, I've really, yeah. bl- I, you know, really blown this. 
And he said, actually, mate, I'm not feeling too well, so um, I'm going to turn my uh, intercom off as well. I was like, oh, no, I really need <laughs> him. I said, do you want us to divert somewhere else? How bad are you feeling? He goes, no, 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 I, I'll be fine. Let's just get back to Kemble. Right. And, uh, and, uh, um, and, then, and, then, and then we'll just, you know, we'll sort it out there. Yeah. Said, okay, fine. So we landed, and that was a much better one. And I taxied in, and he got out, and he said, nothing wrong with me, mate. <laughs> what? Because you're going solo. I said, were you with me in Oxford for that last <laughs> one? He goes, yeah, it wasn't a good landing, but you dealt with it. Okay. And that is the important bit. Right, right. Dealing with the bad stuff is, is the important part, not just doing good stuff all the time, because you will never go through your career flying, doing good stuff all the time. Right. Uh, great. Well, I would, I would have rather done four or five nice landings <laughs> before going off on my solo, but you're the boss, whatever. <laughs> So there I, uh, so he soloed at the back cockpit. It was in a two-seater. So I soloed a two-seater first. Um, I taxied out. And, and he was, he a fabulous guy. Uh, but he was known for sort of constantly nibbing. Was you know, As an instructor, pilot. Okay. So when I know, do this, do yeah, yeah, yeah. have a trim. Yeah. Uh, too high, too low. So to be in, a, be in the airplane and have absolute silence <laughs> other, than this, other than this Merlin engine yeah. was in itself quite disconcerting. <laughs> oh, right, disconcerting right, initially, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and then ultimately bliss. <laughs> so I taxied out and took off. And uh, I mean, I sat, actually, I sat at the end of the runway and looked mm. down and sort of tried to be present in that moment yeah, and tried yeah, to yeah. think to myself, you know, don't let this moment go. Mm. This is really, really, uh, I get a bit emotional now. Uh, this is really, really special. Uh, so anyway, I uh, took off and had the same feeling again as I sort of cleaned up. His, mm. his plan, as I remember it for me, he said, take off, um, circle in the overhead, mm -hmm. let the engine cool after takeoff, calm down. Enjoy yeah. the moment mm. and then come back in. Right. So I remember sitting in the overhead thinking, I'm in a spitfire, I'm in a spitfire, I'm in a spitfire, I'm in a spitfire, <laughs> on my own, I'm in a spitfire. Oh my God. Brilliant. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. And my next thought was in jest to myself, maybe I should do one run down the channel. <laughs> <laughs> That feels like the honourable thing to do. Yes. I said, to be honest, that's not what was briefed. My instructor <laughs> yeah. would probably get pretty annoyed with me if I did that. So having had that kind of jolly moment to myself, I suddenly re I had that moment of realisation, like, hang on, Matt, this is by no means over yet. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. got to get this thing back down on the ground. Uh, and it was probably the best landing I've ever done in a Spitfire. Is that <laughs> because it was like ultimate concentration? Ultimate concentration, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I... I uh, taxied back in. There was an event in the hangar completely by chance. So oh, um, right. uh, there was a, a sort of a 20 piece brass band there. So as I shut the engine down and pulled the canopy back, there was sort of, there was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was quite a moment. <laughs> and uh, my instructor was there with a bottle of champagne and oh, wow. a load of other people who had been involved in my training, who were involved in the aircraft, engineers, etc. And I uh, just broke down. Oh wow! Totally, yeah, yeah. absolutely lost it. So did my instructor. He was in the same same place. Mm. I cried again later that night because I took everyone to the pub, and he told me at that point that not only as a, a now Spitfire pilot did I have to buy them a drink, but I had to buy <laughs> everyone in the pub a drink. Oh wow! So I had to put my card behind the bar, <laughs> much to everyone's uh, great enjoyment, and uh, and keep 
everyone sort of um, lubricated for, I the, think, for the evening. <laughs> I think the pilots of the past from Spitfire days gone would have appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, as I said, I, I cried again later that evening. <laughs> when you got the bill. <laughs> <laughs> but worth every, worth every penny. <laughs> cool, mate. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, because there'll be people again who, who would love to know what it's like to fly more. You also mentioned earlier on your, your many hours spent in Cessna 152s, and I, I learned on those when I was a young air cadet. Yeah. So can you um, give a kind of comparison then? What would be the, mo- not just the nuts and bolts flying differences, but for you, what are the main big cognitive differences between sitting in a Spitfire and flying a Cessna puddle jumper type? Even if you're not sort of aware of the performance capability of a Cessna 152, mm. when you get in it, if you've never flown anything before, you know it's struggling. Right. You just inherently know it's, you know... <laughs> it's just getting it's there. just getting there, yeah. exactly. Where the Spitfire is exactly the opposite. In the Cessna, you have to worry about how fast you climb because mm-hmm. you've got so little power that right. the aeroplane might stall if you pull back too hard or... Um, I mean, actually, the Cessna Bonfit is a very, very capable aeroplane for what it's designed for. It's mm. brilliant for what it's designed for as a trainer, uh, but it's very docile. Um, the the Spitfire, the way I best describe it, that the, the I think the Spitfire in two forms. It it it, it stands for freedom. Mm. It stands for mm. the people who were able to, you know, who who were uh, uh, prepared to commit everything to it uh, uh, for all of our benefits. But but also from a taking the emotional side out of it yeah. the pure um flying machine mm. you sit in it it has unbelievable amount of power unbelievable uh, um, uh agility mm. and grace it's very light to fly so you don't feel your hands move unlike a mustang i'll come on to that in a moment yeah yeah, yeah. So, that, so the, the analogy I've given in the past for this is, you know, if you walk across this room, you don't think about moving your legs. Right. If you're flying a Cessna and you want to go somewhere, you have to think, right, I need to do this and not wor- and worry about that and, and, and add more power and, do, and sort mm-hmm. things out. Right. In the Spitfire, your head is sticking out of this bubble. You mm-hmm. forget that your hands and feet are moving. You just look where you want to go yeah. and it'll take you there. Really? It is that Normal. good. So, so if you're flying along on a nice sunny day few white clouds around yeah. and you want to roll pull up or pull up the side of a of a of a bank of cloud roll yeah. over the top come back down the other side you do it without even thinking about it oh wow i have heard it said that people say you, you wear it rather than fly it yeah and i didn't and so a lot of the a lot of the wartime pilots say that yeah and i completely agree but i didn't really know what they meant until i flew another fighter of, of a sort of similar ilk okay go on um, so this was to say about the, yeah, the Mustang. Yeah. So the Mustang is, you know, uh, next generation really design. It, it came about sort of end of the war. Brilliant piece of design, designed for a completely different purpose. The so a British specification, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. The the Spitfire was designed as a defender. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an interceptor. It was there to build a wall and protect. Yep. It wasn't an aggressor. Mm-hmm. The Mustang was the opposite. It was a, an attack aircraft. Incredibly capable, much faster. But when you're flying it, you still got your head out of the bubble. That's lovely. Mm. But at higher speeds, it, it's extremely heavy. 
Oh, okay. And for me, that brings you back into the cockpit and makes you think I'm moving a piece of machinery right. around the sky. So okay. I, so I found it, and that's that took me back to the to the, you know, the, the wartime pilots saying you wear the Spitfire, yeah. and then I got it, huh. because it's so light to the touch. Similarly, I flew a, um, I, I'm very lucky to fly uh, a Typhoon, oh, fairly wow. recently, Excellent. as a passenger. I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> But I had to, I had a go on it, and um, you know I'm sure people who are listening to this who are you know, aviation um, fanatics will have at, at the very least heard or seen a spit um, a typhoon at, at an air show yeah. and how noisy yeah. it is yeah. and how it kind of rips your your heart in half almost as it flies past. Well, in the in the aircraft, all I could hear the entire time was the air conditioning unit. Really. There was no air sound over the canopy. Uh -huh. There was no feedback from the controls. So I had all these, all the digital displays in front of yeah. me that were telling yeah. me that I was doing Mac 2, <laughs> but it didn't feel like it. <laughs> Whereas in the Spit, and I guess that's because, and I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking slightly outside of my comfort range here, but or my knowledge range, I guess that's because uh, aerial combat now happens at 100 miles away or so. So right. it becomes a, a platform that needs to be easy, comfortable to fly so that the guys can do the clever stuff of working out how mm. to deal with what's going on whereas back in the day it all happened at two or three hundred yards mm. and therefore you had no time to look inside so this spitfire in that respect talks to you and it takes very very little amount of time flying it to get used to what it's telling you so oh, okay so the air the, the sound over the canopy uh the vibration through the stick yeah. the vibration through your feet um, the way your the way your bum feels in the right. seat, all of that stuff is talking to you the whole time, right. so that you never have to look in. Which, if you're fighting it, 200 yards, of course, is ideal. Exactly yeah, exactly what you want. You don't want to be doing that. So it's more of an art than a science. Then you, you kind yeah, of yeah, maybe. I think there's always, there's always been a sort of big discussion in aviation: is, is it is it science or is it art? And there's yeah. definitely a, there's definitely a crossover there. Yeah. But so so to go back to your to go back to your question, mm. I guess. Um, uh, the strapping on bit it does you, you know all of that stuff is just feeding information into you without you having to feel like you're flying an airplane and uh, and that for me is why uh, it feels like it's a part of you yeah and to tie that back to the kind of the responsibility that you have for the, being the custodian of the, the iconic piece of design when did you uh, grow comfortable in that cockpit environment because the first couple of trips you might your heart must be in your mouth I'll tell you when I have oh um, really <laughs> Oh, they say no, uh, the landing's never complete until the airplane's back in the hangar. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be a challenge of the trip that's coming up, isn't it? The, yeah, your longest flight, because I've heard, never done it, but I've heard that it's very tricky to taxi because of the long nose. And I imagine in a built-up airport rather yeah. than your airfield where you fly from, that's going to be a bit more of a challenge. Is that fair? Yeah, Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, it, it's one of those things that, like any skill, once you've got the skill, it's difficult mm. to remember not having had the yes. skill. But I certainly remember getting in the first time. In fact, I learnt in a Piston Provost at Yeovilton, which has the same brake system. Okay. And uh, great mirth from the guy who was who was teaching me as every time I applied the brakes I did a 180 degree turn and was facing the wrong way <laughs> oh, I can't believe I'm not gonna be able to get this airplane even to the runway <laughs> let alone learn to fly it but um actually the Spitfire is a bit easier than the, the Provost I'm still not sure whether I'd be able to taxi that thing around um but it, you know yeah so so the so you've got a, a ton of Merlin engine in front of you which you know when you take into consideration the fuel tanks in front of you as well is is nearly two meters right. probably more than two meters actually to the prop and because the tailwheel or the third wheel is a tailwheel at the back the yeah. nose sits high yeah it is difficult but it but actually 
the taxing bit, you know, you get over fairly fairly um, quickly. Mm. The bit that really I found difficult to understand, and I'd got very used to in my flying previously, yeah. was seeing the runway on landing. Uh, that's something I'd okay. always really enjoyed. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't I'm realize. Going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's the bit of ground I'm aiming for. And then in a Spitfire, if you fly it the way you fly standard modern or new airplanes and yeah. line up a three mile final, then you, uh, you okay. can't even see the airfield at three miles, let alone the runway. Really? Right. So you have to adapt you have to adapt the way you fly. So it's more like bit. landing a glider then, is it? Where you kind of do a curved slanting in type. Yeah, approach. exactly. There's a few right. different ways you can do it, but certainly Certainly, sort of the standard and the, and the historic way of doing it was the curving approach, okay. and that and that way you can always yeah. see the end of the runway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of thing I remember back to our training when we were flying bulldogs back in the day. That's the kind of uh, the way you'd approach if your engine failed almost. Yeah, okay. So you yeah, keep yeah. your eye on the field. Yeah. Exactly, that. and we and we fly the airplane much much closer to the airfield, right, um, than you would a normal modern airplane for the same reason. So yeah. that if something goes wrong. You can yeah. you can glide in. And get home. Yeah. It doesn't glide like a glider, I assure you that. Oh really? Not that you ever want to try. <laughs> Not that you ever want to try, no, but we well we can in the sim now, which is great. Oh, yeah, you know, of course. So, so that emergency spectrum's opened up to you now. Yeah, you fantastic. Can really drill them out. Because if you try and do it in the aircraft in, in training, you know, you're suddenly shot cooling a, a, a mm. twenty eight um litre 27 litres, sorry, um V twelve engine and yeah. you risk there's far more risk of damaging it. Uh, by doing the training than there is of actually of yeah, it happening. Experience so gained from doing yeah, it. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So so we tend not to do that. We just talk through it in the aircraft as to what we'll do. And now having the simulator has added a, a fantastic yeah. element uh, in that respect to uh, our training. How much have you been able to uh, rely on or, or gain information from the old hands while you were still able to about the way they would tackle emergencies and problems? Did you enormous, get input from them? Yeah, enormous amount. It's just fascinating talking to them. You know, I when I first started flying, two stories actually, when I first yeah. started flying the aeroplane, the previous commander or officer commanding Battle of Britain Memorial Fly had said, all landings have to be, for their team, all landings have to be three-pointers, so all three wheels at the same time. Okay. And the next guy who took over said, no, all landings need to be tail-down wheelers, so two wheel, the two main wheels at the same time followed by the the rear. Right, okay. So I started off going, well, here are two greats, yeah. you know, two of the best modern guys telling me two totally different things. So one of the questions I always had for the, for the veterans was, mm. well, how did you do it? Right, what did they say? The best answers I had, and the best answer I got was from uh, Eric Winkle Brown, the sort of very famous test pilot, yeah. and he Navy said, "Navy test pilot, wasn't that's it? right, yeah. yeah, yeah." And he said, "You do whatever you need to do for that landing." <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and, and, and in many ways, I didn't really understand that at the time. I said, oh, "Thanks for sitting on the fence, uh, Eric Bertil Winkle." Didn't he have the world record type number in his logbook? Yeah, he yeah. did. So, so what was his justification for that then? When well, what for, 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 for doing it like I, yeah. I think I think I think you know when I first when like like we talked earlier about yeah. the sort of science versus art thing. Yes. Initially, when you fly, you want numbers. Right. Yeah. This is how I do it. This is how I do yeah. it. Check. And as you as you understand more about your subject, you suddenly realise there are more variables and more things, and then you develop your own technique. And that's essentially what he meant. Right. You know, right. So so if you've got twenty five knots across and you're going to try and put it down on three wheels probably not going to work very well for you right uh but if you've got a very short runway and mm -hmm. you put it down on two wheels then you're yeah. probably going to go through the fence at the right. end so so it's just understanding all those different bits in in one as in we one always bit. get drilled into as flexibility is the key to exactly. our power exactly <laughs> cool. but the other story the other one yes. that, that was really um uh, and certainly comes uh you know t to to mind for this trip where we've uh, 
talked about having to jump out of the aircraft. And mm. actually, a discussion we had when you were training us uh, right. for our survival stuff, yeah. uh, which you were massive help in, with regard to, to do you uh, do you ditch a Spitfire? I remember the chat, yeah. yeah. And all the books saying you don't, and me thinking, well, do you know what? I've uh, I've spent 20 years learning to fly, and I've done one parachute <laughs> jump, and I've never met the guy who's packed the chute. So, uh, to be honest, I'm going to be motivated to stay in the aeroplane if I possibly can. And then, uh, but but the book says don't. It says it'll. Uh, it, it says if you if you ditch in the sea, it'll. Um, it's it'll, like it knows over. Isn't knows it? over, yeah. yeah. What I hadn't picked up on, and what I'd never really understood, and this is the bit where, thank you, John. No worries. You've changed my mental model. Um, <laughs> is you found the document that says yes, it does nose over, and then it makes a pretty quick descent to the bottom yeah. of the sea, probably with you strapped in it. Yeah. Still, so, it took a uh, bit of digging to find that. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. In fact, it's changed. It's changed some of our policy in our business as well. Is it really? So, yeah, oh, wow. so interesting. But the guy, so so one of the other bits mm. along those lines is I met a guy, uh, again, sadly no longer with us, uh, Jimmy Taylor, right. who flew um, photo reconnaissance Spitfires oh, wow. later on in the war. Yeah. And he, he told me a story of walking out to his, uh, his with a chum, mm. and uh, out onto the, the apron. And there were two aircraft. There was one very nice new shiny blue Spitfire and yeah. one battered old. A bit more worn old, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and he got the older one. Right. Anyway, they went off together, and uh, he said that he was over somewhere somewhere in Germany, but close to the Dutch border. And my geography is terrible. I hope there is a Dutch border to Germany. Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I crossed it in a taxi one night oh, in the good, 90s. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, and uh, his son is getting smoke in his cockpit. Oh, okay. Not a good thing. Uh, you know, the fire, fire in the aeroplane is mm. always the pilot's worst nightmare. Mm. So he immediately turned back towards towards Holland and yeah. uh, was descending. The uh, He was trying to put the fire out. Uh, I don't remember if the engine was running, but I know it eventually quit completely. Okay. And then the fire got too, uh, too much to take because if you're over land mm -hmm. as opposed to being over water, def you know, the definite favorite option is to is to stay with the aeroplane and right. put, it in a, put it in a field. Um, but he made the decision then that the fire was too great and he had to get out. Mm. And, and the, the gen at the time was to roll the airplane upside down yep. and drop out, okay. essentially. So that's what he did. He rolled upside down and dropped out. And as he dropped out, the airplane stalled, inverted and uh -oh. flicked. Oh, no. So the wing hit him and right. knocked him out. Okay. And he says he remembers falling to the ground. Well, he doesn't remember anything falling, but as he was falling, he just heard a little voice that said, pull the, pull the cord, pull wow. the cord. And he came round, pulled the cord, and didn't remember anything else until he was on the ground, which is exceptional. Yeah, yeah. Um, he then spent five days on the run and ended up in a, a concentration camp, I think. Oh, but really? he yeah, made it through the war. So um, uh, we had, until that point, in our FRCs, roll yeah. the aeroplane inverted and <laughs> drop out, and that got a big line through it. Did it? <laughs> post, post that story. Right. We've spoken to somebody who's yeah, actually yeah. done this. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because we, yeah, you know, it we do all this training, but how many times have I ever flown a Spitfire upside down at the best glide speed? Uh, <laughs> never. Yeah, nor would you. Yeah. <laughs> so why do it in an emergency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have heard of him, uh, on the Imperial War Museum site some of the oral histories from guys who've been in those sort of situations where they would open the canopy, unstrap, and then bunt forward to so yeah, sort of yeah. eject themselves out over the tail. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, but there's, there's one story. There's one guy who, who who got a victory because he was in the process of doing that, at which point someone, f oh, a, a, an enemy aircraft, flew in front of him. Right. He got back in. <laughs> wow. 
had a go. Pressed the button. Yeah. Succeeded. And, and then jumped out. Brilliant. <laughs> no camera footage from that sort of thing. No, yeah. no. But like you say, they wouldn't brag back then, so it's yeah, a, yeah, exactly legit. Yeah, yeah, Brilliant. Yeah. Hi, I'm Justin Hast, writer and photographer. If you're enjoying the Spitfire podcast, why not take a look at my video series, Time Flies, where IWC museum curator Dr. David Cipher and I compare and contrast pilot's watches, old and new, carefully detailing what makes each model unique. You can find the series on IWC Watch's YouTube channel or search hashtag IWC Heritage. Win the day, folks. And how do you get a, a, a two-seat Spitfire in your life then? Where do you find one of those? So it came up in auction. Really? Yeah, it's, I, can't remember the, I can't remember the absolute details, but I think it's the first aeroplane that had been sold. Mm. It's the first, first Spitfire, the first two-seat Spitfire that had been sold in 20 years. Oh, wow. So it's a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time... Uh, the two-seaters weren't that desirable. Oh, is that right? I mean, the original Spitfire was a single-seater. They yeah. built 21,500, roughly, single-seat right. Spitfires, and only 20 two-seaters were ever built. So oh, I didn't know that. So the model that you made and the model that I made yeah. and the model that everyone else made when we were kids were always single-seaters, and therefore the desirability mm-hmm. um, to own an aircraft like that is, was always for the single-seaters, right. and, and particularly because at the time there was no opportunity to either train people in them mm-hmm. or fly passengers in them for reward right. and they're expensive airplanes to fly so yeah. um so there was an opportunity and we kind of took a punt and um and it worked out uh you know so so we've played a big part in changing with a huge amount of help with the caa who mm. really came on board with us which was fantastic Initially allowing us to train pilots to fly the Spitfire, oh, okay. which was great, which gave us a foothold and gave us a build, uh, a, you know, a, a place to start from. And then, again, with three years of working relationship with the CAA, mm. they came to us actually and said, well, "Why don't you start flying passengers?" Oh, it's their suggestion. Yeah, I oh, mean, it's something, something we'd always wanted to do, obviously, yeah, yeah, but yeah. there was no way. So they yeah. said, "Why don't you start flying passengers?" Passengers, and we said, "We'd love to, but there's no way we can do it." Yeah, and they said, "Well, why don't you come up with a way and suggest it to us?" Oh wow, that's interesting. So you did a little bit, of, almost of like training designers, I would call yeah, it. But, yeah. yeah, we did exactly. We did an enormous amount of work, and then um, and then th- that process. You know, we didn't get it right initially. Never, you know? no one ever does. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that process took a year or so of consultation. Yeah. Um, we were helped that there was sort of some some government incentive to to. Um, Get GA moving within oh, yeah. within the country. Within right. the, you know, the, I think the, the politicians realise that GA and aviation plays a huge part in our in our in our future as right. a country, and uh, and there was some therefore some pressure to make GA sort of more attractive, and so we we timed it right. Yeah, again a bit of luck. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're making your own by the sound of it. And then four years ago, we got the first approval to to fly oh. passengers. Oh, I didn't realise it was that recent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh. So when you first started it, because I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who've done a little bit of flying and they'll be dying to know, when initially the uh, the licensing was to train other pilots, what was the kind of minimum CV content these guys had to have or girls had to have before they could fly and learn a Spitfire? It's a, it's a very good question. It's an interesting one because when we sat down, we think, well, okay, let's, let's build three different types of person or pilot who okay. can come along and do it. And yeah. the reality is, with nearly 10 years of taking those people on now, is that everyone is different yeah yeah everyone has a different background everyone has a different level of talent right when you combine all of these things it's almost impossible to put down on paper 
you know, what you need. Mm. You know, we could, we, we trained, um, we, we set up a scholarship with Prince Harry and uh, uh, the Royal Foundation mm. four years ago to train two injured ex-servicemen to fly the Spitfire. Oh, I saw something about that online, yes. And we, and we, trained, uh, we trained these two guys um, with, and then they, neither of them were, they both had private pilot's license before, but they had 40 to 50 hours total time. So, so you like know, the, the minimum. Yeah, the absolute yeah. minimum. And we took them from that to mm. solo uh, in the total time of 120 hours. Oh, wow. They were extraordinarily talented, <laughs> you know, and it just goes to prove in very similar way to the guys back, you know, by, back in the war. Yeah. Um, that it can be done. They were right. young. Yeah. And they were talented. They were up for it. Yes. And with those with those three things, they yeah. had they had um, you know they had what it what it takes prepared and, and able to put the effort in. That's yeah. the key with all these sorts of things, isn't it? And we can easily take guys with ten thousand hours who've been flying airliners their entire life who yeah. have no feet. You know, <laughs> right. uh, you know, for people who aren't pilots, the uh, the way a modern aircraft works these days, you know, the, the the systems are all tied together. So really, you don't actually have to use your feet very much. Uh, whereas in the Spitfire, you they are your life. Basically, right, right. Uh, and unteaching someone what they've learned over ten thousand hours it transpires is a very difficult thing to do. So, so it really depends. We 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 will talk to and listen to anyone who shows interest yeah. in it, uh, and depending on how much time they're prepared to commit, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll we'll then sort of set up a plan if we think it's sensible for them. Right, that's brilliant. But, and but and now you've got your simulator as well. I'm sure that'll ease things in a little bit for people yeah yeah it does actually so that, that's a really really exciting development and um it, it's the it's the only one of its kind in the world it's a mm. it's in a sort of original wartime cockpit from frame 5 to frame 13 that sits on uh that sits on rams uh so you get pitch uh, feeling you get the bumps off the runway oh, you get uh, you must come and fly it i'd love to <laughs> it's fascinating actually it, it, you know we like anything, you invest that amount of time and you worry the whole time it's going to work. And, and I watch people coming out crying mm -hmm. and coming out sweating. Wow. And those two things are synonymous with flying the Spitfire for me. So I know that, <laughs> really? I know that the simulator is <laughs> doing its job. Um, but it's made up. So, so all the dials inside are exactly as per the aircraft. They're all mm. original, converted behind so that you can't see that they're digital. Right. The, the guy I built it with actually... Um, because it's computer driven yes everything is binary so the right. numbers are exact and what happens is all the all the dials in it moved way too perfectly okay so there's a, like a lag in the originals so, so yeah so the actual airplane the, the, the needles wobble all over the place and you basically take the mean <laughs> really <laughs> yeah the middle blur exactly exactly <laughs> Uh, so he got this guy that we've never met who sits in a dark room somewhere in Germany, I'm sure, yeah. uh, called uh, Gunther, I think his name is. Right. And, uh, and he programmed the wobble for us. Wow. <laughs> the dial wobble has <laughs> the been dial wobble put back in. Into all sort of 15 <laughs> gauges in the, in the cockpit. So, so it's so as we, close as you can actually get then to It really to is. One. It really is. And we're, we, you know, we're, we've launched it. We're launching it in two phases. One is for experience. The second mm. is for training. Right, right. It's now launched for experience. We're just refining the details uh, for the training part. Right. Anyone who gets in the Spitfire now who's flown anything before will mm. recognize it as a great aeroplane. Right. The only people who may have any criticism of it are well-versed Spitfire pilots who will get out and say, well, it's a little bit pitchier, right. the, the pedals are a bit more sensitive. So <laughs> They're so in a minority, though. <laughs> they are. And we're working at the moment to just sort of um, 
just improve all of those little bits so that we can, you know, hand on heart say this yeah. is, this is a 100% bona fide. I'm a, I'm one of those pilots who believe you have to know your aircraft mm. really well. I once mm. when I was training, I once read this thing that Ch uh, Chuck Yeager wouldn't fly an airplane unless he knew every sort of rivet, bolt, whatever. And I right. thought, well, he's one of the best. If he if it's good enough for him, yeah. it's certainly good enough for me. So I do try to understand the aircraft I'm flying. Uh, Certainly, building the, s the simulator has mm -hmm. given me an enormous amount of extra knowledge. Yeah, but, but particularly in the, the working in the, in the yeah. cockpit section, yeah. my knowledge of the wings isn't as good as the yeah, as you say, the working section. So, yeah. and so when you're trained, I enjoy so that part of it. I find mm. you know the the beauty of the engineering and the and the way it was constructed for. Now, using mm. uh, design at those times was so beautiful. Naturally, I think we hark back in cars and mm. bikes and you know airplanes and early and streamlining. Yeah, from the aviation industry initially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the Spitfire really was the pinnacle of that. And then, yes. you know, you, we know we all know what its purpose was, but it was you know it has no floor. You know, why doesn't it have a floor? Well, floor is weight. Weight's unnecessary. That that reduces the, the the airspeed by half a mile an hour. And if you can, if you can change twenty bits like that, then suddenly you've gained ten miles an hour, and that yeah. can be everything in combat. So, yeah. I'm fascinated by that kind of design um, mentality, uh, and what you're able to create with a lot of very smart people thinking the same way. Yeah. Uh, and the Spitfire is is that. Yeah, and then you get that kind of balance between uh, lethality and efficiency, but also beauty because of its its graceful shape. Exactly that. So we do when we when we when we do the passenger flights, um, we offer you can either go up on your own, or you can mm. fly with a single seater alongside you, or you can fly with another two seater with a mate in it oh, alongside wow. you. And and doing that, uh, and you've done lots of formation flying, so you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The the um, it's the square of the experience because when right. you're in an aircraft, you're flying the cockpit. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you look at a picture of a 747 flying through the sky atop the clouds with the sun in the background, it looks like a magic experience. Yeah. But when you're sat in the airplane down the back, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's not it's not the same experience at yeah. all. Now, obviously, flying in the Spitfire with this bubble canopy, you get an enormous amount more than you do in the back of a 747. So I'm not comparing them like that. Right. But when you have a another Spitfire alongside you, mm. your brain can connect the fact that here's my cockpit, here's my controls, here are the wings, yes. and it connects the dots. Yes, so, yes, yes. so the whole thing becomes a lot more understandable to you. Yeah. And you watch this aeroplane, you know, on the ground, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of a, like a bird, really. It's a bit of an ugly duckling. It right. sort of waddles around. It doesn't look right. Not in know, its element. Not in its element, yeah. exactly. And then it gets into the air and it just sort of becomes this unbelievably beautiful, powerful, serene, as you said, in many ways, uh, way uh, too beautiful for purpose, actually. Right. There's a kind when you, of, when yeah. you consider what it what its design yes, was yeah. for. It's just um, it's a spectacular thing to, to watch. And then you, you mentioned it there, the kind of the iconic status that it's, it has. That's a, a bit of a responsibility on your shoulders, I guess, when you're in the air in it. Do you, do you feel that or do you live in the moment? <laughs> yeah, hugely. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I think we all do. You know, there's, um, the, they have financial value, but they, mm. you know, I've flown modern jets that have far greater financial value. The emotional value of them is huge. And mm. you just, like I said at the start of this, you know, we're, we're, we're all very humble as pilots, I think, because we don't want to be the guy that messes it up. And if we do, we don't want to be the guy who's giving it some yes. <laughs> before messing it up. So I think we all fly a little bit with that monkey on our backs. Like, yeah. you know, I don't want this to be the landing that I have to tell my kids about uh, and my mates about and all yeah. that, and that sort of stuff. So, 
there is a huge responsibility. You know, the, the aeroplane stands for so much for all of us, uh, mm. to all of us. And um, having any part of it is a great honour. Yeah, it sounds, it does sound like it. And people are interested in it as a piece of national heritage. Oh. So I guess every time you cross the boundary hedge, there's a few faces turned um, skywards. Unbelievable. You know, I, I knew it was important, of course, when we set the business up. But as a result of being a part of it, and very early on initially, you know, I had a, I had a, a thing that really sticks in my mind is that I had a, uh, a fueler come up. To mm. me. It's actually down at Kemble. Um, and uh, he fueled the aeroplane or helped me fuel the aeroplane. Mm. He said, would you mind if I touched the propeller and had, a, and had a, a picture in front of it? And I said, of course, of course not. You know, of course yeah. you can. Yeah, yeah. And she burst out crying. Oh, wow. And I just thought, I just in that moment, I thought, you know, here's a guy who's around aviation every day, mm. you're clearly passionate about it, n never been this close. Mm -hmm. This was our aim to sort of, you know, to, yeah. to break these boundaries down. And, uh, and here it was in action. And, and, that, and that just made me realize, and actually to every day I have any, any part of it, I, I continually see this sort of reaction, but I just realize how much it means to people. Yeah. And you can't put numbers on that. I mean, I've done a little bit of reading before we, we chatted this time and found out that during the war, the price for a Spitfire was quoted as £5,000, which is pocket money these days, isn't it? For yeah, something that's, that's right. Almost priceless. That's right. But then I found out that people dug deep into their pockets and raised about two and a half million quid yeah, in incredible. a month or so, just so their town or That's right, the presentation province. Spitfires. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's the, those presentation Spitfires. So I'm, again, I mentioned earlier this, this idea that this aeroplane is more than just nuts and bolts and metal. It means so much. And I think one of you know, the presentation Spitfire bit is mm. one of the reasons for that. I think, yeah. I think so many people club together to play a part in their history. You know, mm. So back home, the government were really keen for towns and villages and companies, etc. Uh, to make people feel they were a part of the effort, even if the effort was now no longer in the UK and was, was yeah. you know, in Europe and, and whatever. Uh, and I think that made people really bond with this aeroplane so that not only were they interested in it in raising funds that when it was built and had their name on the side mm. of it they then followed it all the squadron all the pilots that flew it and that's how that kind of connection that kind of that yeah. uh, came with it that it that it got passed down i think like a, an uncle or a brother who's yeah. done yeah it's part of the family yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah exactly. part of the community yeah yeah Mate, it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you today about flying the Spitfire. And um, you're going to be back, aren't you, to talk to us about the, uh, the longest trip itself, longest flight. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, in line with our why we set our business up and, and sort of inspiring mm. and can reconnecting it uh, with people in this country, yeah. you know, we've realised, of course, that a lot of people around the world have very similar um, connections to it. Yeah. So, so our aim... Uh, in August this year, which now, as we record this, is less than a hundred days away, which wow. is quite frightening, yeah. and exciting, uh, like any good adventure should be. Yes. Um, uh, so we're we're aiming to fly around the world in about four months, to, for it to take about four months, mm. fly to thirty countries, uh, do a trip that's never been done in a Spitfire before, and uh, and reunite it with some people who haven't seen it for seventy years, mm. and inspire some kids hopefully yeah through its design beauty grace through aviation generally yeah. and uh we're very very excited that we're uh, about to set off on that trip uh 
with our sponsors and uh, you know IWC uh, being a huge help in telling the story for yeah, us and yeah. uh, you know when we set about doing this we're a very small team and we wanted to tell a big story and mm. we're not capable of doing that but we are capable of doing the flying part so having having a company like IWC on board who uh, share all of our engineering value the precision mm. and the um, technology etc uh, to then be able to tell the story for us in many ways yeah, and yeah. touch and inspire as many people as possible has made it a has made it a great partnership so we're excited to take off with them yeah well great mate and best of luck with the rest of the prep until we, we chat again soon hopefully great stuff thanks very much John. cheers matt cheers Thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. We are going to have Matt back on towards the end of the series to give us a bit more detail on the longest flight expedition, taking a look at some of the risks and rewards of flying this 70-year-old plane around the world. Next week, I'll be joined by a couple of guests to discuss what's under the bonnet of the Spitfire. I hope you'll join me again for that, and until then, goodbye.